join me in the book of Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8 as we continue our series in the book of Exodus, Jehovah Unveiled. God is showing himself to be supreme over, over all things. And he's doing so, at least in these passages, through these 10 plagues. Actually, there are 12 signs that God is using. The first one was the sign of the staff turning into a serpent. He did that in front of Pharaoh. And the last sign is actually the exodus of the children of Israel. And then in between those two, the first and final signs are the 10 signs that we know as the 10 plagues. What we're going to see throughout the plagues is that God is destroying idols. He's taking the idols that the Egyptians have of their own and he's making a mockery of them. He's making them look completely powerless, which of course they are. The greater view that you have of God, the more your idols will fade as well. The bigger view that I have of my God, knowing that he is all-powerful, that he is sovereign in every area of life, the bigger view that I have of God, the more I understand him, the less I will be relying on myself, my own idols. The same is true for all of us. As we go through these idols, it's helpful to remember that God did not actually tell Moses beforehand all that was going to transpire. He, did, uh, he, he didn't tell him the order, he didn't tell him the number. He did tell Moses that this final one would be the death of the firstborns and, and that would make Pharaoh uh, let the children of Israel go. Uh, so Moses doesn't have an itinerary. He has no idea how long any of this is going to take. Moses has to walk by faith, trusting God each step of the way. Moses has an idea of the big picture that God, because he knows the destination, he knows that God is going to take them out of Egypt. But he doesn't know what's coming next until God tells him. It's true for us as well, isn't it? We know the destination, but we don't know all the steps along the way. We just have to trust him. Let's say our theme verse together. It's Exodus 6. Six and seven. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is going to make himself known. He's going to claim his people to be his own and that my friends, is the same God you and I serve. Last week we had the first plague. The Nile turned to blood. Actually, it was worse than that. It was all the surface waters of Egypt turned to blood. The fish died and the whole place stank. The only way for the people to survive was to dig for water. And chapter 7 ends with, uh, and seven days passed. So this was a week that, that this plague was occurring. And now we pick up in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. I encourage you to follow along as I read as we look at the second plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, 
Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when am I to or when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, soften our hearts to hear from you this morning. Help us to know you better and help us to live lives in accordance with that truth. So Lord, I ask that you would help us, that you would help us to be open to the movement of your spirit in us, that you would guide my thoughts and words. In Jesus' name, amen. So seven full days have passed since the Lord struck the Nile. It's the last verse of chapter seven. The Nile has produced death, all the fish dying because the, the waters had become blood. And though not explicitly stated in the text, we can deduce that the Nile had now returned to its normal state. But in, now instead of the waters of the Nile killing everything, the waters of the Nile are producing an innumerable number of frogs, an incredible nuisance to the people. In the first few verses, we see God warning Pharaoh, just as we saw at the beginning of the first plague, uh, as Moses and Aaron went out to the Nile to meet Pharaoh and to warn him that, that, this, uh, that this plague was going to happen and then actually have it happen right there in front of his eyes. He could witness the water turning into blood. This time, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, so go to his palace. Excuse me. And, and give him this warning. And the warning is a... Uh, do this or type of warning. It's not just warning this is coming. It was actually an opportunity for Pharaoh 
to respond. Look at verses one and two. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Verse two, but if you refuse, if, it's a conditional, if you refuse, then I will plague your country with frogs. That was Pharaoh's opportunity to say, you know what? I like frogs, but not that much. We'll just let the people go worship. He had the opportunity. The frogs here are a direct punishment for inaction on Pharaoh's part. Where did the frogs end up? Everywhere, verses three and four, in the bedroom, on the bed, on the people, in their ovens. It says in their bowls, in their kneading bowls. Uh, Those kneading bowls weren't necessarily empty. The frogs are contaminating their food supply. It's one thing to have an abundance of frogs in the river or nearby, but the frogs are acting in a manner completely different than normal. These frogs are invading people's homes. They're everywhere. The question begs itself, why frogs? Of all the things, why frogs? The Egyptians had dozens upon dozens of deities, at least 80, that they worshipped. The goddess Heket had the form of a woman with a frog's head. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? A woman's body with a frog's head. And they worship this idol. Why in the world are they worshiping frogs, such an inferior creature? You know, the curse of sin really does derange the sensibilities, doesn't it? Things that, if you would just even sit and try to logically consider, don't make any sense, and yet people do it. And as much as it's great to point the finger to the past and people who worship the craziest of things, are we better? Too often, I suppose we're not. But because the frog was worshipped, it was unthinkable to kill one. You know, when we talk about worship, we think about singing worship songs. I don't know if they had any worship songs to frogs. They may have. They probably did. People are weird like that. We think about worship as singing. We think about worship as reading the Bible. We think about worship as participating in the gathering as we are doing right here. And all these contexts are correct. They're not wrong. But worship is always more. Anytime I talk about worship, I say something along these lines that worship is always more than our actions. It's about our heart, right? In other words, you can be in the worship service, but your heart might be far from here. Your heart might be far from the Lord, And the things that would keep you from worshiping God are idols. And they're as useless as frogs. Today that idol might have been last night when you stayed up too late trying to be entertained on TV or watching a movie, right? I'm not asking for a confession. Keep your hands down. And because you didn't get enough sleep, your idol of pleasure could be keeping you from worshiping now. Right? God wants us to serve Him. 
not our idols. In, in the illustration of not getting enough sleep because, well, in our household, I, I say often that Sunday morning starts on Saturday night, right? We have to limit what we do on Saturday. Catherine's shaking her head violently. Yes, that, that it gets said in our house quite frequently. We have to limit what we do on Saturday because we need to be ready for Sunday. Now, these things that we might do on Saturday, these, these pleasures that we might participate in are not necessarily sinful. There are plenty of good pleasures that God has ordained, that God has given you as a gift. And if you don't take advantage of them, if, if all of your life is only wearisome toil, you will become unbearable and no one will like you. Right? We need pleasure. We need that balance from the toil and stress. God, God designed us for rhythms of work and rest, of toil and pleasure. But when pleasure becomes an idol, when pleasure becomes a priority that hinders our worship, it becomes an idol. When work becomes a priority that hinders our worship, it becomes an idol. When family becomes something that hinders our worship, it becomes an idol. Right? It's not, not that any of these things are bad, it's that they're misprioritized. All sorts of good things. Good gifts of God become idols when we misplace our priorities. The list of things that is keeping Pharaoh from worshiping the one true God is long. Frogs are one of them. But his list of, of reasons why he is not worshiping the one true God is a very long list, but it can be summarized. Pharaoh is only content to serve idols that levy no moral obligation on him. Take that in a second. Pharaoh is only content to worship that which places no moral requirement on him. Does that not sound like the culture we live in? So he can worship the Nile River because the Nile River is seen as the source of life, the source of wealth. He can worship the frogs because in years that are bountiful with rain, in other words, the, the Nile River is full and overflowing, in the years that are bountiful of, with rain, there are more frogs. And so having an abundance of frogs in certain seasons of the year was actually a normal thing for them. And it was a sign that the gods of the world were blessing the land of Egypt. But since neither the Nile nor the frogs make any inconvenient moral judgments on Pharaoh or any of the Egyptians, they're content to worship these objects. But Jehovah... The one true God, Yahweh, as he is known, he wants Pharaoh to give up his slaves. Now, now it's personal. The Nile doesn't make requirements like that. The frogs certainly don't. Pharaoh is in no hurry to comply. So God has taken their false gods and, shown, and is showing the people who really has power, who really is in control. So, the Lord says to Moses to say to Aaron, 
take that staff, the staff that turned into a serpent, that staff that you stretched over the Nile and turned into blood, take that staff and put it over the waters again and frogs will be produced. And exactly that happened, verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt as if it wasn't already bad enough. So the magicians are able to produce more frogs, but really if the magicians had any true power, they would have reduced the number of frogs or somehow stopped the plague, undone the plague of Jehovah rather than duplicating it. Well, of course, that's probably what they wanted to do, but they were powerless to do so. Only God has that sort of power, that irreversible power. So Pharaoh has been warned, and we have this fascinating passage beginning in verse 8 that kind of looks like Pharaoh is relenting. So if you're taking notes, you've got Pharaoh's warned, and now Pharaoh relents, but put a big old question mark with it. What we see is Pharaoh responding to this plague in a very different way than he did the first one. When the Nile turned to blood, Pharaoh simply put the Nile behind him and walked home. It really didn't impact him. He had servants to go dig wells and provide him fresh water. He could ignore the plague. It wasn't really a direct impact on him. But when the frogs invade... Pharaoh is personally affected just like everyone else. He cannot ignore them and just go about his business as he did last week. They are everywhere. So he summons Moses and Aaron. Verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. though he wouldn't want to admit it this way, he recognizes that only God can fix this. Only the God of Moses and Aaron and the Israelites can fix this. And he desperately wants it fixed. So he calls, he summons Moses and Aaron. And and there's this detail of this account that is a bit distracting. In verse 9, Moses says, Pharaoh, be pleased to command me or be glorified to let me know when I am to plead for you. And what's his response? He says, tomorrow. I mean, wouldn't he say, right now, as soon as possible. This is a little distracting. Why not today? Why not as soon as possible? And here's what may indeed be going on. The the when is less about a time as it is perhaps a day. When Moses asked, when should I plead, that probably communicated a day, not a a specific time. And so tomorrow may well have been Pharaoh saying as soon as possible, knowing that to go and plead with God is not something that should be short and quick, that it's probably going to take some pleading. We don't know that. But Moses tells Pharaoh why God will remove the frogs, that God will do this for his glory. Verse 10, and he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be, at, be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Why does God answer prayer? Actually, it's the same reason he brings difficult circumstances in our life to begin with. So that his 
power, and glory might be known. Whether it's him answering prayer and removing that negative circumstance from our life, or whether it's his answering our prayer by helping us endure that negative circumstance of life. When God brings bad things into our life as believers in Jesus Christ, it's so that he might be glorified as we pray. At least that's one of the reasons. Verses 12 through 14, we see that God answers prayer. Verse 12, Moses and Aaron pray. Verse 13, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out, they gathered them together, and the land again, or still, stinks. So how does God undo it? In the first sign, that first sign that Moses and Aaron did in front of Pharaoh, uh, when Aaron took the staff and threw it on the ground and it became a serpent, it was probably quite a large serpent, not a little garter snake that we might find around here. It was a terrifying sight, I'm sure. As he takes that staff and throws it down on the ground, it becomes a serpent and then picks it up and by the tail and it becomes a staff. This is how that first sign was done and undone. The second sign, the first plague, took a whole week but then was just simply undone. This third sign was only undone or only rectified after Moses pleaded with God. Only after Moses begged of God at Pharaoh's request. Now, we don't have any specific content of Moses and Aaron's prayers. Did they pray just once? Lord, please glorify yourself by removing these frogs. That that may have been it. Or did they stay up all night praying? I don't know. But I do know that some of the most dramatic answers of prayer that I have witnessed didn't come after a one-sentence prayer. Can God do that? Absolutely. Does he sometimes? Sure. Most powerful answers to prayer that I've ever witnessed were after a season of prayer. After praying through the night for someone in the hospital that was on life support and didn't, wasn't expected to make it and yet pulled through. times that I've fasted and prayed for people, either for health problems or for their salvation. The most impactful moments of answered prayer that I have ever witnessed have always been after intensive prayer. Not the little one sentence. My guess, and it's a pretty educated, good guess, is that Moses and Aaron prayed continuously until God answered. The fact that Moses' prayer to God was 100% effective and the reality that everything the magicians did only served to make things worse, not better, clearly, clearly demonstrated the power of God. God did this. Pharaoh knows it. By the way, not just Pharaoh. All of Egypt knows it. How does Pharaoh respond? In verse 15, we see that he reneges. He had said, I will let them go. Just pray to your God that these frogs will be out of my house and out of everyone's lives. 
Pray to your God and I will let the people go to worship. That's exactly what Pharaoh told Moses and Aaron. But by verse 15, after God had warned Pharaoh of this plague, let my people go or frogs are coming. And after Pharaoh showed signs of surrender by asking for prayer, he looked like he was, he was softening. He asked Moses and Aaron for prayer. God completely answers the prayer for relief. But in verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God has used Pharaoh's idols against him. And as soon as Pharaoh has his relief, he no longer cares about obeying Jehovah. For about a day, he was ready. The frogs were so horrible. He was ready to let the people go. Just pray to your God that the frogs leave. But as soon as the frogs are gone, Pharaoh turns back to himself. God has turned Pharaoh's idol into a joke and not the funny kind. He's taken the frogs, an idol of Pharaoh, and revealed the powerlessness of this deity, in fact, all of Pharaoh's deities. God has made his own power known to Pharaoh. So in one fell swoop, God has shown how he is powerful and how his magicians are powerless. They could not undo, overpower, or even slow down the work of God. Yet Pharaoh is content to follow in his false belief. Because by the end, in verse 15, he's no longer willing to listen to the Lord. His immediate problem is taken care of, and so there's no need for him to even put on a show of, of surrender. Well, what does all this have to do with us? I don't worship frogs. I don't think you probably do either. Our big idea this morning is God wants us to serve him, not our idols. How are we doing with that? Keeping in mind, it's not frogs. When we take into consideration the fact that we as human beings just naturally produce idols in our hearts over and over and over again. How are we doing? Do we even recognize that we have idols? It's a sobering exercise. Just spend some time alone with God and ask him to reveal the idols of your heart. Pharaoh has had encounters with God, with the one true God, by way of Moses and Aaron. And with each encounter, Pharaoh has the opportunity either to obey or to rebel. He keeps choosing to rebel. He will obey. It takes a while. We, too, have encounters with God. By nature of being with God's people as we worship, as we uh, as we read scripture, as scripture is taught, as it is preached, we have encounters with God and we too, each one of us, have a decision. Do we obey God 
or do we rebel? Do we surrender to the authority of God in our lives or do we continue to rebel, to serve idols that we have produced ourselves? So we have to ask ourselves, will I turn in surrender to the all-powerful God? Will I live for the one who showed me his eternal power? He didn't do so by invading my house with frogs and remove them. He did it through the scripture that is recorded for us and, and most poignantly by, by taking Jesus who died my death, the death that I deserved, and raising him from the dead. God made a mockery of Pharaoh's idols and God will make a mockery of our idols as well. He will reveal to us that our idols also are powerless. Are you trusting in your job to find satisfaction and contentment? This is a theme that I bring up often because especially we as men, we tend to do this. We find contentment and great satisfaction in our job when we should be finding that satisfaction in Jesus, the one who gave us the capability to have that job, the one who gave us the capability to serve him forever, that Jesus... If, if we are trusting in our occupation, our vocation, God will not be content to let you stay there. He won't. So examine yourself, men and women. Examine yourself, children, students. Do you find your satisfaction in what you do, whether it's sports or academics? rather than finding your satisfaction in God. If you're finding your satisfaction in anything that's not God, he will make that thing stink for you. Maybe it's not vocation or occupation. Are you trusting in your relationships to find joy and peace? If you are, God is not gonna be content to let you stay there. He's gonna make those relationships hard. He's gonna make them stink. We need no more signs of God's power and superiority to take care of everything we need. He has that power. We know it. We are, we, we've seen it in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We see it through the revealed word of God. We have all these narratives recorded in Scripture that, that Jesus is superior, that he's greater, that he is to be the center of our focus, the center of our hearts each and every day, not just as we gather, each and every day. God has proven powerful over our idols. The longer that we cling to our idols, the more painful it will be when he finally shatters it. So let's ask him today. Lord, what am I hanging on to? Reveal to me that sin that I am hanging on to so that I can release it for your glory. Let's pray. Father, you have proven to us through the cross of Christ as, as Christ conquered death, that great and final enemy of ours. He conquered death by remaining dead until the third day. And you, rose, you raised him from the dead so that you could prove your power to us. Lord, help us to surrender our idols to you. 
whatever it is, whatever it is that we prioritize over worshiping you, whatever it is we prioritize over living for you day in and day out, Lord, help us to surrender to you. Help us to serve you without holding anything back so that you might be glorified in us. Father, have your work in our hearts so that we might be more like your son today. In his name I pray, amen.